All right, Jesse. This is it. You and me. Man to man. Stuntman! We're gonna go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And I'll just let you know up front here, I have a lot of notes about cast and other things, so I don't know if that bodes well for this yeah, episode. Uh, I had a long walk on Eternity Road uh, last <laughs> week, and uh, yeah, I picked up I picked up quite a few notes about this episode. Yeah, I um I was trying to show this episode to my my uh, my dog, and it barked a lot at it. And I'm like, well, okay, maybe not. So that's no. <laughs> All right, yeah. <clears throat> May we never speak of the hunt again until the end of the season. Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, it may come back in the conversation. I don't know. I, you Top know, five. I, <laughs> I appreciate that Sterling's given me a whole stretch of episodes here that I can choose from. Cause I was worried for a bit about how this is going to shake out in my, in my standings for the year. So, all right. Uh, this next one we're talking about is season three, episode 20 showdown with Rance McGrew. Air date was February 2nd, 1962. Uh, number one film, El Cid. Number one song is no longer The Twist. It is oh, man. The Peppermint Twist by Joey D and the Starlighters. So I like everyone's like, you know, we're done with twisting. No, we're not. Now it's twisting with a minty flavor to it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, day and date, what, what happened? So I'm going to let you know that, that there's two, two very different viewpoints going on in the world around this time this episode came out. So you tell me you know, which seems more rational than the other, uh, on the second, uh, John U Ulysses, I think it's Ulysses. It's spelled a little weird. I'm pronouncing it wrong. Became the first person to surpass 16 feet in the pole vault, clearing the mark by a quarter of an inch at the Milrose games in New York city. He was assisted by the use of a pole made of fiberglass, which is like a big deal at the time prior to 1930 existing techniques limited the maximum height of vaulting to 14 feet. Um, after someone had cleared 15 feet in 42, this 16 foot barrier had been pursued for more than 20 years. So that, you know, great. You know, the, using technology and techniques, man's going higher and higher, right? The next day yep. on the third at seven Oh five AM Indian standard time, a doomsday period as predicted by Hindu astrologers began. It was reported that the astrologers had predicted that on Sunday, uh, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, the earth will be bathed in the blood of a thousand Kings because of the alignment of the six planets and the earth and the sun and the moon. Uh, in Britain, the Aetherius Society director, uh, Keith Robertson, which I don't know why we had to have name him in this, would spend February 4th awaiting disaster along with many of the society's members. He had forecast that very soon the world will go and do a big flip when the poles will change places with the equator. 75% of the world's population will be killed, but the alignment and the eclipse ended without uh, any notable disaster. But I think the pole vaulter 
is what launched this uh, doomsday period. You know, like that's he, what I was gonna say. That yeah. it sounds like there's something to that. Yeah. I mean, the poles flipping. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, pole vaulter uh, clearing that the uh, sixteen foot yeah, sixteen, 16 foot, foot barrier uh, yeah. bar. Like he, something, something's. Uh, he defied God, and God's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> now, now starts the doomsday period in which the, there'll be the blood of a thousand kings. You know, so I liked how, like, the day before, this guy's like, I did something that's never happened before, and then there's other people in the world being like, well, screw it, we're all out. Like, it just, I just feel like there was very different mindsets in this 48 hour period in which this episode aired. So I just like the, the contrast of the advancement of like, you know, physicality and pushing humans through limits. And then the abject fear of the world flipping upside down and everybody dying. So, and just think 99% of the people watching this episode that we're talking about at the time had no idea either of those things were going on. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the world could have probably been more than 99% to be honest, like unless I don't know, I don't, maybe the pole vaulter is on the cover of every paper in the, the country. But. Yeah. Like the, like the <laughs> next day, like, uh, you know, man, clear 16 foot. And then like, there's a little brief aside on the bottom, right? It's like, you know, doomsday period begins like just something, <laughs> you know, like I, I'd like to think that like just a little brief little story, you know, like get your shopping done now because in three days we'll be bath- bathed in the blood of Kings, you know, like, sorry, whatever. So, also 16 feet. <laughs> love it yeah so there you go that that's your uh that's your history for when this episode aired cool so we'll jump into cast and crew here because as you had previously mentioned there is quite a bit to talk about in this episode um as soon as this episode started and all of these people appeared on screen i was like well this is gonna be an hour and a half show <laughs> Yeah, isn't that usually like like I don't know about you, but I always root for like if it could only just be like a single person in a locked room, that would be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's happened a few times. Yeah. I mean, two was the best thing ever. That's fair. Yeah. Though I think we talked about uh, Charles Bronson for an hour on that, so it didn't actually even save us. That I time. mean, he he's more than one man. He's every man. So that that that's fair. So yeah, but yeah, this this episode, there's a ton of people. So yep. yeah, so we'll we'll dig right in here. This episode was directed by Christian. Nibby, I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. Nibby, I think I think Nibby might be better. Yeah, yeah, I'll try. I like Nibby. <laughs> it's cuter. But Mr. Yeah, Mr. Right. Mr. Like Nibby directed this episode. Yeah. Uh, so this uh, he directed one other episode of the uh, Twilight Zone. His biggest directorial feature that he worked on was The Thing from Another World. Now, there's kind of some debate whether or not he actually directed this because he was an editor previous to directing and he was an editor for filmmaker Howard Hawks. Um, and Christian Nibby ended up win- winning an Oscar for editing for Red River in 1948 that was directed by Howard Hawks. So a lot of people give credit to A Thing from Another World to Howard Hawks um, just because it kind of has his stylistic flair to it. Um, but that's probably his biggest credit to date. Yeah. Um, he, like people would ask him about it and they'd say, well, it's very similar to Hawks. He's like, well, why wouldn't it be? Cause I, you know, was editing under this guy for a number of films. So you learn yeah. from the master. It, it's a similar yeah. thing to like, uh, um, recently with, oh, sorry, uh, lost thinking, river yeah. with, um, um, oh my God, Ryan Gosling and it being so close to how drive and, um, only God forgives look, but it's like he worked under, um, Oh my God, I'm drawing blanks right oh, and left today. Yeah. Uh, um, f- friend, Ren, 
Ren, uh, what's his name? Oh, yeah, and Nicholas Reffin. Reffin. Uh, See, like, like he worked with him for the past couple <laughs> of years, like, nonstop. So, like, of course, he probably picked up some uh, things. And obviously, they share similar sentiments on filmmaking and everything. So I can kind of see it being that type of thing. But I guess he was kind of upset with having his name on a science fiction movie for a while because he felt like no one was going to take him serious because of it. And then eventually, as sci-fi became a legitimate genre, critically, uh, he eventually became okay with having his name on that, obviously, because that has turned into quite the classic and ended up being remade by John Carpenter in the 80s. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something that uh, because of his work, it's influenced what I, you know, obviously I know you and I both love the remake of the thing significantly and yeah. it shaped a lot of what we love about film. So it had to start somewhere, right? So, yeah. Um, and I, I looked here, you're right. He, he, this was his kind of high watermark and he did end up doing a lot of TV Westerns, which kind of makes sense based upon yeah. what we're uh, 26 about. episodes of Bonanza, 14 episodes of Rawhide and countless other series. Um, those were probably the two we worked on the most, but yeah, definitely, definitely makes sense that he would be working on this episode for the twilight zone. Yeah. Uh, so the episode was written by Serling based on an idea by Frederick Lewis Fox. Um, there's, there's some kind of back and forth on, uh, how much he actually took from Fox. Um, but I guess Frederick Lewis Fox gave him a idea about a deceased outlaw who comes out of his grave to like uh, get retribution on the people who killed him or whatever. So he gave him this real rough outline, but Serling had been kicking around an idea uh, long before this about the idea of an actor going back into the past and actually having to um, deal with <laughs> like the real historical figure that he's playing. So he was watching like a ton of John Wayne movies and just thought like, what if John Wayne actually went back and had to deal with this type of thing, which I guess doesn't necessarily necessarily pan out because John Wayne was in the military. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, but that kind of thing, he had been kicking around that idea for a while. So he kind of combined the two and we ended up with showdown with Rance McGrew. Yeah. So that you're right. That's I had I had a note here to talk about this. Basically, uh, you're right. Fred Fox. He, well, this is what Sterling said about it. Fred Fox had an interesting notion, which was quite serious about a modern day cowpoke, not a television star who found himself living in the past It had no sense of humor in it. Well, that's that's not a bad thing, Rudd. Uh, it was a straightforward piece, but it struck me that it would be a terribly interesting concept to have a guy who plays the role of a Hollywood cowboy suddenly thrust into the maelstrom of reality in which all he has, he has to do is act. What was it? in which he has to do all these acts of prowess against real people. So then, yeah, you're, he brings the, the correlation of John Wayne, like what would it be like if he was actually back there. But, you know, as much as John Wayne may not have had the greatest of range, like the guy, the guy did some stuff, you know? So I, I don't know if Sterling was quite aware of, of, of uh, John Wayne's actual history, but, you know, yeah. th- that's where the idea came from. So, yeah. And, and there's a lot of back and forth on how much um, uh, Fox actually gave him mm-hmm. and uh I, it changed quite a bit by the time i got to screen but um just him trying not to get sued again for <laughs> for plagiarism he decided to just give fox credit for the episode um so we'll jump into cast here we have larry blyden who plays rance mcgrew and we previously talked about him all the way back in a nice place to visit he plays rocky yeah the criminal who gets thrust into a <laughs> Uh, lavish new world in a new apartment. Yeah, it, like it, 
I don't know about you, but it took me a while to be like, I know this guy. Like I just, it, watching the episode, I'm like, he looks familiar. And then when I realized it was Rocky from the previous, like first season episode, I'm like, wow. Like that, I just, I would not have picked him because he played credit to him. Like he plays those characters very differently, you know? And I, for some reason, kept thinking this guy was like in a sitcom that I saw growing up or something. Cause he has that kind of, you know, that, that uh, nervous energy about him. But yeah, I just I did not place it was from that episode until I read went back and did my research. Yeah, same for me. Uh, totally different performance in this, mm-hmm. um, and much less grading for me. Surprisingly, <laughs> in this one, because <laughs> uh, if you remember back in that one, I was kind of down on his performance as Rocky. So he, he was. Just I looking, definitely enjoyed him more in this one. He was just looking for a stacked broad. I mean, can you really can you blame him? <laughs> you know. <laughs> So next up, we have Arch Johnson, who plays Jesse James, and we previously talked about him on the episode Static. He plays one of the, I think he's one of the tenants in the building, Roscoe Bragg. Yeah, I think he was the antagonist that was kind of harassing the main character who was also, you know, like an annoying person. But yeah. And then he was also a fireman in Long Distance Call, but an uncredited role. And in Hawaiian Eye. I'm sure we mentioned it back then, but you just got to bring it up when it's appropriate. So yeah. Just got to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Robert Conthwaite. Cornthwaite. Cornthwaite. Oh, all yeah. right. He plays the director in this episode, not to be confused with the actual director of this episode. Um, he was also in The Thing from Another World. Uh, he was in War of the Worlds, the original movie adaptation of that. Uh, Joe Dante's matinee, which I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah. I saw around when it came out that w- I remember liking that movie, but I don't remember much about it. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. Kind of a under underrated film in Joe Dante's filmography. Um, he was in one other episode of the twilight zone and mystery science theater fans will recognize him from reptilicus. Yes. Small bit role in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then lastly, the only other thing I had for him was whatever happened to baby Jane. So in his, uh, um, bio, it says upon his return to civilian life in 1946, Cornthwaite, uh, cornflake, whatever moved to Hollywood and soon <laughs> found movie works. He found, he soon found movie work typically pr- portraying scientists, lawyers, <laughs> and other learned types, learned types uh. in a number of studio productions. So it's like, yeah, that's, that's true. But I love how they put in quotes, learned types. So yeah, Mr. Mr. Robert Corn Cornflake here as a as the director. I mean, I'm I'm sure he was happy. He continued to get work and everything. Uh, he had a long career, but that sounds like some of the most boring roles you could possibly <laughs> land in any of those movies. But what about that guy we talked about in Dead Man's Shoes? That like like was it ten percent of his roles were playing a waiter or maitre d? You know, like I yeah. think that yeah. has to be a little boring too. But yeah, just playing like, learned you can, types. You can do and be anything when you act. And uh, it's just got to be frustrating to go in for casting and constantly like, yeah, you look like a waiter. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you with the glasses. You look like a learned type. Get over here. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so next up, we have Robert Stevenson, who plays the TV bartender. Um, he was the radio announcer in the Midnight Sun. Yeah, he's so the I guy that, that was interesting. Was losing his shit, like talking about like why does it even matter anymore? Everybody needs to know. Like you, know, you could cook eggs out in the ocean or whatever he said. I forget something like that. I think he meant to say on sidewalks you could cook soup in the ocean. I think is what he rants on about. And then they pull him off the air. So uh, it's weird that he had a bigger part in that episode and he was actually seen in this episode and didn't say much or anything at yeah. all. <laughs> Um, so next up we have Bill McLean who plays the prop man. So it's his only twilight zone 
couldn't really find anything else of uh, note for him. He was in an episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. That's all I wanted to note because everything else, <laughs> you know. You know, we always try to find the WKRP Cincinnati connection to the Twilight Zone. And here we go. It's, it's, it's uh, Bill McLean. There we go. Uh, next up, we have Troy Melton, who plays Cowboy Number One. Uh, this was his only Twilight Zone. Uh, I just I wrote him down because he was actually a stuntman and he did a lot of work on some uh, some amazing films. Mm-hmm. He was he did stunts on Dead Heat, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Deer Hunter, Towering Inferno, Earthquake, Blazing Saddles, Magnum Force, Dirty Harry, Battle for Planet of the Apes, Scorpio. Just like it, it was just an amazing list of movies he worked on as yeah. part of the stunt team. So just wanted to give him a little credit, although I probably couldn't pick him out in the actual episode. <laughs> I think it's one of the first two guys that we see. I think that's Cowboy 1 and Cowboy 2. Uh, but yeah, yeah, probably. He has 49 stunt work credits. I, like I figured you'd mention that. And he also played a, a henchman four separate times in the 60s Batman TV series. So they liked his look enough to be like, you're a henchman again. Like and so that's a career I want. I just want to play henchman and do stunts. Like that's <laughs> perfect. Yeah, um, I like it. Troy Melton, my hero. <laughs> we got uh Jay Overholtz as cowboy number two. This yeah. is the last of his eight appearances. I know we've mentioned him at least six or seven times. At so least far. seven other times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel like we may have missed his first couple. Yeah. So um, but yeah, this is the last time we get to talk about Jay Overholtz. <laughs> yeah, he was in he was in the Jungle, Static, Odyssey of Flight Thirty Three, Twenty Two, A Thing About Machines, One for the Angels, and he was in the very first episode. Where is everybody? He was one of the yep. reporters at the end, or the military people at the end. Yep. So, so there you go. We unfortunately have to say goodbye. Right off into the sunset, Cowboy Number Two. You've served well. <laughs> uh, just a couple more here. We have Bob Klein who plays the TV Jesse James. Uh, This was his only Twilight Zone appearance, and he did work with this director before. um, He made a war movie called First to Fight, um, which I guess didn't go over too well critically. Uh, I couldn't really find much about the movie, but uh, he had worked with Christian. Um, How did we decide we were going to say his last name? Uh, You like Nibby. That's fine. So we got got Nibby Nibby as the actual director, and then we have Cornflake as the fake director. So, yeah, we're good to go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we have James Turley, who plays Rance's stunt double in this. Um, he was in four other Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, he was in The Lonely, Long Distance Call, The Silence, and then uh, one future episode. Mm-hmm. So I figured it was worth it to mention him. Um, and then lastly, the only other one that I had on my notes was Robert McCord <laughs> as Man in Saloon. See, I wrote uh, him down as Robert McCord as Robert McCord. Just wanted to make sure that, that I knew who he yeah. was. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the 19th of 32 appearances from him. So right, we're not ready to say goodbye to, to Robert McCord yet. So, all right, I got a couple other notes here just real quick. Uh, Alvy Moore, oh, sorry, Alvy Moore, I think is the name. He was a man on stool. That's I love the character name. Um, <clears throat> he played a bumbling character in Green Acres. I wouldn't know, but it seems like that was his big note, like claim to fame. I also just want to notice this guy was in uh, three movies that I want to mention. 1952's Skirts Ahoy. I thought that was a great name. 1953's Battle Circus, which that movie's nowhere near as badass as the title makes it sound like it needs to be. And I need a movie in my mind of what Battle Circus really is. I don't know. It just sounds amazing. Um, And then he was also... 
what what a boring poster for Battle Circus, too. <laughs> like, I need, like, I understand that, like, circuses need to kind of go away because, like, there was, like, we we have moved on from, like, caging up animals and sending them down railroad tracks to the next town. But if we were to do a film, I need to see, like, tigers and elephants with, like, guns on their back fighting out yeah. in the Battle Circus. You know, and I need mimes like, you know, or clowns holding up like invisible guns and shooting each other. This is this is the film I want, you know, like trapeze flying all over the place, like trapeze artists and just dropping bombs on people. That's that's the battle circus, you know, um, that's not. The, yeah, that's this, not this film. movie looks super serious. <laughs> uh, looks like a war film. Oh, uh, I mean, drama. It, mine would be a war film as well. Just not what they're thinking, you know, so although it does have Humphrey Bogart in it, so. Mm might be something worth it. does he have like a but, large cannon shooting people like i just probably not um, no i see some helicopters and some army jeeps that's ooh, about it okay uh and then he was also briefly in uh an intruder the sam raimi film so i thought oh, that was very nice mentioning yeah. um and then um you just mentioned uh humphrey bogart so sid troy was a crew member on this he was uh, in casablanca so thinking you were uncredited and like the people consider the second greatest film of all time and now you're uncredited in this episode of the twilight zone um and then chalky williams is man in saloon i just chalky half man half shark (laughs) yes uh he was in a lot of westerns i just wanted to say his name chalky williams so there you go and that's it yeah yeah (laughs) I'll never not think of uh, um, Cabin Boy when I hear Chalky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe that's where they got this name from. I don't know. But yeah, so there's a lot of. A oh, lot I'm of, sure. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like what they're just putting together, you know, the magnum opus that is Cabin Boy. They're like, we need some names, you know. Oh, look at that. Chalky, Chalky Williams. So, yeah. All right. That's it. That's your that's your cast and and crew here. Um, there was other people. They just they, there's a lot of people in the background of this episode. So, and that's it. So I got nothing else. Yeah, cool. So let's let uh, Serling take it away, and we'll get into this the story. Some 100 odd years ago, a motley collection of tough mustaches galloped across the West and left behind a raft of legends and leisure domains. And it seems a reasonable conjecture that if there are any television sets up in cowboy heaven, and any one of these rough and woolly nail eaters could see with what careless abandon their names and exploits are being bandied about, they're very likely turning over in their graves, or worse, getting out of them. Which gives you a clue as to the proceedings that'll begin in just a moment, when one Mr. Rance McGrew, a 3,000 buck a week phony baloney, discovers that this week's current edition of Make Believe is being shot on location, and that location is the Twilight Zone. There's some mustaches right across the West. That's uh, uh, yeah. that's the episode I want to see. Yeah, uh, there's a. Uh, I can't. I can't wait to get into the introduction of Serling here. And yeah. How he pops up on screen. I so say what like I'm sure we're kind of like maybe telling a little bit about how we felt about this episode. It is one of my favorite Serling intros in terms of how he shows up in the episode. I'll say that right now. I love that. I thought that was great. Yeah, it's got to be top three of all the episodes we've covered yeah. so far. So, um, yeah. I, so I, this starts off with uh, what we believe to be uh, a Western town. There's a really nice uh, crane shot of the, the, the roadway. Or not roadway because it's, it's a dusty, you know, whatever, old-timey town road. The dust way. Yeah, dust I way. Mean. You know, that's, that's where you know the dust way. Uh, and then it, it comes down to Cowboy 1 and Cowboy 2 coming out. 
and they're looking off in the distance and they're, you know, saying he's late, you know, and it's like, you know, basically doesn't he know he's going to get shot if he doesn't show up type of thing. And you get that whole, like, you know, you're waiting for the, the stranger to come into town or, or the gunslinger. Right. So, um, immediately what happens is you hear this commotion and down and down the dustway, this, uh, <laughs> this, uh, you know, convertible like caddy with these huge, uh, steer horns on the front just tears around the corner with music blaring and like, you know, throwing, kicking up dirt and everything. And this is Rance McGrew just barreling down, making his way to the saloon that turns out to be a television set. Um, at this point I was like, huh, this might be kind of a fun episode. Cause I, I like the subversion. The shots kind of cool. I was not expecting, like I literally was not expecting this car to come like out of nowhere and I had the horns on it and everything. I just, I liked, I liked this bit of it. And I was like, maybe, maybe, you know, we're in for a fun time. And that was, you know, that was my expectation at that point. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, it, it just defies your expectations cause you're, you're set up for a classic Western episode and all of a sudden this convertible comes through. But I just want to say, like, I love the look of that convertible. It, was it tells cool. you so much about uh, who Rance McGrew or the actor who is playing Rance McGrew. Um, it tells you so much about who he is as a person, just with the way he's driving, the way the car looks with that ridiculous, uh, the steer horns on the front of it. Um, it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Um, I'm trying to think when I was at the Country Music Hall of Fame years ago, they had I, I thought it was Merle Haggard's car. Um, I thought I'm, I'm trying to Google it frantically, trying to figure it out. I thought you were going to say they had Rance McGrew's car. You're like, now I know whose car this is. That was well, no, it, it looks just like whosever hmm. car that is. And I can't figure out who it was. I, I want to say it was Merle Haggard's. Um, but yeah, it was like this white convertible with the steer horns on the front and everything. And I'm, I'm kind of curious now if maybe, was Maybe it, that was his car or yeah. something. Wasn't Boss Hogg's car, though, like a white stretch vehicle with horns on the front? It wasn't a convertible. Like from yeah. um, from Dukes of oh. Hazard, right? Like, I think he had I think he had steer horns, right? I mean, I. Yeah. I could yeah, be. no, it was it was a white convertible. So, yeah, it's basically Bo- Boss Hogg's car yeah. from uh, Dukes of Hazard. So I'm trying to think maybe I'm just uh, maybe I'm just mistaking memory of the Dukes of Hazard with the country music <laughs> hall of fame, <laughs> which is easy to do, you know? So, yeah, but, um, yeah, but it's such a cool car though. Like yeah. I would totally drive this thing around, like forget the general Lee, like I would drive this thing. You, you, you drive the Rance McGrew. Um, so yes. yeah. yeah, he gets out of the car, like he's in a hurry and, uh, he's just basically like, you know, he can't even, it's almost like you get the feeling he can't even be bothered to be there, but he has to still show up because he's the, he is the lead in this, whatever this is. And the director's like, you know, like, you know, basically like, thanks for, you know, being here. You gotta, gotta you know, we gotta get, get going. And he, I like his line of, um, oh, cause there was, there was a lot of quick statements in here, but he says, you know how the emotional scenes just upset me, you know, like basically he, this, he's going to shoot this emo- emotional scene and it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's upset him. So he, you know, for whatever reason, that was his reason for being late because he wasn't looking forward to it. And he's sitting down to like the makeup mirror and he's like ordering everybody around and, you know, for for being like this baddest ombre, he's a bit of a prima donna. Yeah, and I I love the uh, um, 
the director Robert Corn Cornthwaite. I'm never gonna get that right. Jeez. Hey, um, I couldn't I couldn't stop saying Homer versus Hyder last week, and that's completely on me. So if you say well, Cornflake, this, is, it's this okay. is my turn. I'm gonna screw up everyone's name this week. Uh, but I love how the director, uh, just how annoyed he was the entire time. Yeah, with uh, Rance McGrew. So I, uh, yeah, I, and then um, to see. After after that bit, he goes to do his scene, right? Like he goes to go to the bar, or do we? Where is this? We meet Serling. Well, yeah, this is when we see Serling. Yeah. So a few people go out. Well, he's he's still getting ready. Everyone's kind of frustrated. A few people leave the saloon. They go through the doors. As, as the doors swing open, it reveals Serling leaning against the uh, yeah. uh, the convertible outside. Yeah, it's 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 awesome. Like I just because he's so like casually leaning against this car, and we always kind of talk about how like or me how I wish he'd be more like involved when he does his intros in terms of like being kind of a presence in the story. This yeah. just feels like he is just right off camera watching this whole thing play out, and it's it's awesome. We we've gotten so many episodes recently where uh, they just spin the camera and then fade it into a. Another spin that goes to Serling, mm-hmm. so it makes it look like he's on the set. Uh, we've gotten so many of those the past couple of episodes. I was expecting the same thing because the camera kind of turns. I thought it was just going to whip over and have him, you know, at the side of the bar or something talking. But the fact that it just kept going through the doors and it reveals him leaning against the car was amazing. Yeah, I dug it. I mean, his actual intro, I don't know how I feel about it. I do like the statement of tough mustaches. I don't know if that was funny to me, but I always feel like sometimes when he gets more verbose with his intros, there's there's going to be he's covering up something. And I don't know if that if that's me projecting, but that feels like it's his tell. Of like, I'm going to set this grand thing and then here's your episode, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so well, I always yeah. know when I when I zone out the first time I watch his intro and I have to rewind to actually listen to it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's usually a telling sign for me. Um, yeah. So but I don't want to say how I feel about the episode. <laughs> so. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so now we get into the shooting of this, uh, the scene and. This was actually legitimately the funniest part of the episode for me. So they they give him his gun and uh, he starts spinning it around, trying to do all the tricks with the gun and everything. And you see everyone kind of moving out of the way. <laughs> yeah. And I, I didn't really catch it until after what happens happens. But everyone just starts scattering away, does it. And eventually he loses the gun. It flies behind the bar and breaks the mirror. Uh, yeah, behind the bar. <laughs> but it was it was funny because like I didn't really notice the people scattering beforehand uh, until I went back and watched that scene again. And <laughs> like legitimately is probably the funniest thing in this episode. Just seeing everyone's reaction when he starts doing that. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a little little like nice tell of like everybody's like, oh shit, this is about to go down again. <laughs> you know, and it's like so I there there are there are moments in here that I can appreciate. It's just we'll, we'll get there. It's just you know I I'm I I I'm coming down on this episode in a very weird spot. But yeah, like I yeah. liked him just twirling the gun. I mean, the the mirror becomes a thing, but you know whatever. I I did like everybody running for cover. Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna lay uh, to put it in Western terms. I'm gonna lay some of my cards down on the on the table here. This is actually one of my more favorite comedic episodes that we've covered. Oh wow! Okay. I yeah, see. I I don't know. I I think a lot of it is due that when there is 
comedy happening in this episode. There's no quirky music in the background or anything. No, there's a bunch of stock Western music that kind of drove me nuts at times. Yeah, like, well, you know. it, it, there was like later on, especially when when we get to what's going on this episode, you get a little bit more music. But during during a lot of this stuff, especially earlier on in the episode, there is no music. Like I actually made a note a few times uh, when I was going through it, like no music, no music. And uh, for some reason that worked a little bit better for that, me. That's fair. Cause you, uh, you're right. I, I, yeah. They're just not, they're not trying to make me feel a certain way about the comedy, Yeah, which is, it, it's something like that drives me crazy with like laugh tracks. Like I, I don't like comedies with laugh tracks usually. Um, and, and there's something about when you put comedic quirky music under it, it just pisses me off. And so the fact that there wasn't as much of that in this, uh, I, I think helped it. But I legitimately laughed a few times in this, and that's uh, that's more times than I have in previous comedy episodes. <laughs> that that okay, that that's fair. I you know, point, points awarded. That's yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, um, I, so. I mean, I don't know if that saves the episode as a whole, but I I thought there were some fun bits in this. Yeah, so. Uh, you go to the, we get to him actually supposed to be shooting his sequence where he's at the bar and um, the first, the bartender supposed to slide a bottle of rock gut whiskey down to him. And it just, you know, it, it's, it's traveling at a decent, decent clip, but not, not uncatchable, but for whatever reason, Rancis cannot, you know, he's not ready for it. He accuses the bartender of putting English on the bottle. And I like how the bartender's like English. What a, like basically like, what, what are you talking about? Um, and then, so they, they go to shoot it again and he takes the bottle. He just, he breaks it against the, the actual, like, you know, railing of the bar, um, and then drinks from it and then has a piece of glass in his mouth. That he takes forever to pull out and throw over his shoulder. Um, you know, it's just like, I understand that this is setting up something later. I still don't know if that's something that happens in TV Westerns where it's like, I'm going to take this perfectly good bottle and break it open because I'm a badass and drink from the sharded remains, you know? Um, yeah, it was a little weird. It, I, all the stuff felt very strange in the beginning of this. And mm -hmm. it, it just made both him and the TV Jesse James in this, like just come off as so awkward. Cause <laughs> at this point we get the, uh, and it, it was funny. Like I, I enjoyed it because when Jesse James enters the bar during the scene that they're shooting, um, he comes in and he's just got he, the swagger. Like this odd yeah, like, swagger and flamboyance to him. He's got like this ascot on and um, he comes in and kicks a table over and the way he kicked the table over. I, I had to rewind to watch it again because it was just it's so goofy. Yeah. And it, it, it's they're played like cartoon characters. And that kind of goes into what the final message of this episode is saying. Like, like out of the corner of my eye, TV Jesse James like Bill Hader to me. Like just it was kind of Oh yeah, like, it, like, it definitely could have been Bill Hader. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of I kind of want to see a remake now with Bill Hader in that role. But uh uh, yeah, so like th this whole thing is like, you know, they're shooting this whole, it's supposed to be a showdown and he's supposed to face down Jesse James. And then um, they're, they go through this whole like brief, it's not even a montage, I guess it's a montage, but it's just like these segments of where anytime there is the beginning of possible threat to Rance as, a, as an actor, he calls free stuntman. And they keep switching out the sequences of going through a fist fight, jumping off of a bar, like every single time. It's like he he calls for the stunt man like earlier and earlier. It's very cartoony. I I, I get what's I like I like it. It it's more it's more of a modern cutting of comedy through like a, like a scene, 
you know? So I appreciate that. It yeah. was, it just shows you how spineless Rance is as a person. Yeah. And it pays off in a pretty good way too. So after the scene, um, when he's, when he's standing around talking to the crew, uh, the stuntman walks by and he's all bloody and beaten up and everything. And he's like, Hey, great job out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. That scene actually paid off with something. Um, so they get to the death scene and, Jesse James is supposed to be laying on the floor. You think he's going to be dead. He's going to reach up and shoot Rance McGrew in the back. And so the Jesse James character is kind of saying like, you know, I don't think Jesse James would do that. He seems like somebody that would look you in the eye as you shoot you or whatever he said. Um, But while that's going on, there's a whole debate uh, with Rance McGrew at the bar (laughs) with the whiskey bottle. Yeah. uh, Whether or not it's cola inside of the uh, well i, I guess uh, it, it is, is cola, cola he was ginger he asked ale for rupee, or uh ginger ale yeah <laughs> um yeah. And they're like well it's gotta look like whiskey <laughs> yeah but he's he's mad that it's not ginger ale no, i like that the director's like get rants ginger ale like like he's like basically like placate the child give him his wubby give him his ginger ale he'll be fine um, but I also just like pointing out that like, like the fake Jesse James, the TV Jesse James is like, he actually is as goofy as he is. It feels like he's actually done his research and actually was to like, you know, approach the character correctly. And he kind of, when he raises this, like, you know, dispute about like Jesse James wouldn't do this. Like Rance just kind of turns around and is kind of like choose him out for it. He's like, really? You're going to do this with the fastest gun in the West. Like he's, he's telling you how how legendary Rance McGrew is as the character. And he, it's just the way he says it's all like, it's so it's such, you know, like you're like, Oh, you're so full of yourself that, you know, the, even you can't even imagine your character being faced, uh, you know, like with the challenge of another, you know, another gunslinger on your caliber. Yeah. He, I mean, he's totally, he's all in on his character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is a, his ego has grown so big that he thinks he actually is Rance McGrew, which they uh, credit to the episode. They never actually give the fake actor name. Well, no, his, his name is Rance McGrew. Cause he says later on when he's running out of the bar, he's like, I, you know, we'll get to this, but he's like, I did it for the residuals and I thought it'd be great that they actually let me use my name as the character. So this oh, is, man, I missed that twice. Yeah. So he actually, you know, this is this is him like Rance is him, you know, and but Rance, the character is this legend and Rance, the real person's a pain in the ass. Yeah, he's a, he's the child on set, yeah. <laughs> but I love the director in the background during all these scenes, just kind of like slumping down in his chair further and further. Oh, we um, forgot to mention the gunshot that knocked the gun out of the hand of Jesse James. What was oh, up with yeah. that? Like, that yeah, was weird. I, I couldn't really figure out what was going on. So. The plan was when Jesse James enters the bar that Rance was going to shoot the gun out of his hand and just like hit his pinky or something just enough to make him drop the gun. So when Jesse James does finally enter, the gun does get shot out of his hand and you see somebody else on set with a gun. Yeah, like they're holding it like they just fired a shot like they literally shot the gun out of his hand off camera. I didn't know. Yeah. 
I, I, like, I couldn't really figure out what was going on with that. But everyone thinks it's Rance McGrew and like the director looks happy. But then they look over at Rance and he's still fumbling to get the gun out of the holster. And yeah. he ends up when he does get it out of the holster, he throws it up in the air and it breaks the, the mirror. mirror behind the bar again. Yeah. So I just want to believe, so, though, that, call back. that really in all Westerns up to a certain point, there was a guy off camera that was shooting guns out of hands. I really want to believe that they had someone with that kind of accuracy to be like, okay, just trust him. He's going to shoot the gun out of your hand. It's fine. <laughs> I've seen a few uh, low budget uh, Westerns from the sixties that I, w- I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> yeah. So um, whenever, so we get to the point here where after Rance kind of dresses down TV, Jesse James, he turns around again to go take a drink of his ginger ale. Um, there, there's a, a very similar uh, story convention that happens. like in this episode to compare to another episode and you hear this loud dong noise and everything kind of freezes and you know, something strange is about to happen. And it reminded me of the big tall wish, you know, like that sudden like a sound and that we know we're no longer in, in the correct, we're not correct, but we know we're going someplace strange. Yeah. I mean, they've used this quite a few times of just somebody ending up in a different time period. Yeah. Um, outside of their own, so it's definitely nothing new to the series, um, but yeah, just using that freeze frame and everything—it's—it's uh, it's cheap, it's effective, gets the point across. I don't love it, but I understand why they did it. <laughs> no, I, I understand why too. But it's like it, it was—it was so very similar to the Big Tall Wish, you know, like the, so that was kind of odd. But again, we've had many discussions about how do you put somebody in time travel. So like you know. Yeah, the simpler, the better. Uh, It's cheaper. It doesn't make you question it at all. It's just like, all right, something happened, whatever. Um, So, again, I don't love it. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I put in my notes, as soon as I heard the dong noise, I was really hoping this episode was disappearing from reality. Like, I just like. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't even bad yet. Uh, Yeah, I mean, but this I wrote that on my second viewing. So, yeah, um, I knew where I was going. But then all of a sudden you, you get like Rance holding you know, this broken bottle and he goes to take a sip out of it. And he's like, this is really whiskey. And he turns around and none of the crew are in this, this saloon. And there's guys sitting down playing cards and, and everything. Like all of a sudden he is somewhere else. I mean, in the exact same saloon, but you know, we, it's pretty obvious he's back in time or so we think it's a little weird. Yeah. So he's, he's back in the old West, but they were on a they were on a studio lot. So we'll talk about some of the inconsistencies of whether or not this actually happened or whatever. Mm. Um, and when we get to the end and everything. But yeah, it, this is when also they start the uh, the stock Western music yeah. comes more into play uh, when he goes back in time. Yeah. So as he's like kind of like, you know, trying to get his bearings, um, the, the real Jesse James shows up and was like, basically, and this is the first, when I first time I watched this episode, I'm like, he's talking kind of odd, not like as in like, um, delivery of lines, but he's talking about like, you're like, how, why would old West people like, like the, the situation he's saying things that I thought was just, I thought was poor scripting to begin with. So credit to Serling, like he's kind of coming in and like looking for rants. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was, there was a comment when he's looking for rants and, I, before I forget to say, Arch Johnson, uh, definitely an imposing figure. Yeah. The guy looks huge <laughs> when he walks in. I, I, maybe uh, Larry Blyden was just really short, but uh, definitely uh, imposing. So he walks in and he's kind of calling Rance McGrew out. You know, I heard that he's this great uh, 
Marshall and that he wants to challenge him to a duel and all this. But as he's going through some of his accomplishments and calling him out, like whether or not he did them, uh, Rance mentions that he won an Emmy for one of his performances on one of the episodes. And uh, Jesse James acts like he knows what an Emmy was. That's yeah. like that. That was like that first telling moment that was confusing to me where I was like, there's no way that he would have let that slip. Yeah. Um, I do like, like that. He keeps calling Rance a, a marshmallow. And I, I, I wrote in my notes, Marshall Mallow. Cause I know since Rance is supposed to be the Marshall, um, yeah. And I also like it whenever he's first sitting at the table, he's just trying to avert his eyes from Jesse James. And he's like, yeah, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for the, the merit marshal or the sheriff around here. And he's like, he's over there and he's pointing to a corner with nobody in it. Um, <laughs> like, so I thought that was okay. But yeah, he starts kind of going through Rance's like successes, right? Like, you know, and then also um, in the meantime, like he goes to buy him a drink and then we revisit the bottle gag where he gets an actual, you know, like actual bottle, not a sugar glass bottle. And, he, and Rance tries to break it against the bar like, you know, like he did. And this thing just just utterly just gets destroyed and there's nothing left. Um, yeah. and, well, the yeah. first time he tries, nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. So you realize that it's a real bottle. And then when he finally puts enough force behind it, it just shatters and you can't drink out of it. But uh, and then then um, Jesse is offering him a cigarette to, to roll it <laughs> on his, his own. Um, and which, you know, Jesse yeah, so does. Yeah, I, I like how Jesse James does it effortlessly. Yeah. Like, you know, he's, he's got the bag of tobacco in his mouth and he rolls it up, closes the bag while it's in his mouth and everything puts it away or tosses it to, uh, Rance and Rance just fumbles. He pours too much onto the, the wrap and, uh, it's considered a wrap. What is that? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a rolled cigarette, so it's like the like yeah. the actual just tobacco paper or what do you call it? Yeah, whatever paper. the paper. Yeah, uh, but he pours like a ton of tobacco on it. Yeah. He's he's getting the tobacco all in his mouth while he's trying to hold the bag, just dropping everything. He just looks like a mess. Um, I thought it was pretty funny, just the fact the way he was trying to copy Jesse James just to look tough. Yeah, um, I wrote I in my notes here. Uh, rolling a cigarette's hard. I wouldn't know how to do it. I bet Rod would know how to do it though. <laughs> like so. That oh, was... for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So and these, uh, these are all the things Rod Serling's like, well, if you're going to be tough, you got to know how to do these three things. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> got to be able to shoot a gun, roll a cigarette and drink whiskey. And I like that. Uh, I like that Jesse calls him um, the most because he's like kind of calling out ranch, trying to get like a rise out of him. And he says, you're the most even tempered dude I ever did meet. And it's like, I understand that like dude was slang for cowboy. It was just it's weird hearing it. And today, like with today's context, you know, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, he is. He is an even tempered dude, you know? Um, so I, I thought that was like, it was fine and I, I get it, but just, I don't know. Like I, I'm having more fun talking to you about the gags in this episode than I enjoyed watching them by myself. I don't know why that is. Um, so <laughs> you're going to end up making me kind of like be okay with this episode. I don't appreciate it. So anyway, let's continue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so Jesse James continues to call him out for being a phony and everything. Like you, um, you don't ride, you don't shoot, you don't fight. Yeah, basically call him out for what he is. You know, he's an actor who doesn't actually know how to do these things. Um, so he's basically saying that the other characters on the show that he's taken into custody or killed have basically gotten together for real, have come back. And decided that they want Rance to lose once in a while, just to make them look better. Yeah, take so a, take he, a little shine off your pants, is what he said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Um, I hope no one ever says that to me. Um, so he wants to have a duel with them. And he says no stunt doubles this time. So they go outside. And as soon as he gets outside, uh, Rance just starts running. Yeah. <laughs> but which I don't know if he caught it. Uh, I think I caught a boom shadow. Oh, I caught a car driving way in the distance. There, there, oh, yeah. There, and there is also looked like a light because uh, they were passing the windows. Yeah. Like it looked like one of the lights from like the production reflecting in the window as well. I mean, I'm sure those are errors, but people would also argue, well, is his life reality? Is he like back then? Like I, I'd like to I'd like someone to try to argue that those, those were all on purpose to make you really wonder what was going on. But no, there was a car way in the distance driving and I saw it. And I'm like, <laughs> like, it's like if you if you didn't have the, 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 the advantage of modern technology, you wouldn't even know. But like the second time I watched this, I'm like, that's a car. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll have that debate of whether or not that was on purpose. I don't think it was, but no. it, it does kind of work yeah. uh, when you get to the end of this. So, um, yeah. Um, so as, as Rance is being forced into the showdown, that's when he has the whole thing of him panicking and saying, you know, I just did this for the residuals. I got to use my name. Like he's just basically saying like, I, you know, I'm not going to be good at this. Don't, don't make me do this. Like I'm, you know, he's, he's admitting to basically just being the, you know, the weakling that he is and he's just terrified you know so yeah yeah, yeah i like jesse james just uh he's not listening to him at all he basically is like i'm gonna count to five and then we're gonna draw uh told him that he can draw first and uh he's ple- he's pleading with him like please not to shoot him brings up his aging mother and his thousands of fans or whatever he said millions of fans um calls for his stuntman at the last <laughs> second as he gets down yeah. to one um and he goes for his gun and he fumbles it as usual. Well, I like that Jesse says to him, he's like, I'll even let you draw first. Cause you know, he's like, you couldn't even outdraw a crayon. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good line, but again, it's like the whole, like what's, he know what a crayon is, you know, but whatever. Um, yeah. The crayon, the Emmy, all that kind of stuff gets brought up during yeah. the scene too. Yeah. Uh, but you start, and I started getting my suspicions when we got to this point. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. Sorry. We also get the important line from uh, Jesse James. Uh, we may be stiffs up there, but we're sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then so at that point, Rance is basically like, don't don't do this. I'll give you whatever you want. And he's like, anything I want. And he's like, yeah, whatever you want. And then he gets like Jesse gets contemplative for a second. He's like, well, that's an interesting situation you provided me. I'm not quite sure what I want, but I'm thinking about it. And as he's rolling like another cigarette, he's just like kind of leaving uh, Rance to twist in the wind about it. Uh, and then Rance is still like panicking. And then um, j- just whenever you think things are about to, you know, come to a head, that's when everything switches back to the set. Yeah. You know, and he's like, you know, crying out for help. And he's standing at the bar, you know, and everybody. And I, I like how the, the crew really isn't bothered by his like freak out because they're just like, oh, well, that's just Rance. You know, like no one's really yeah. upset that he <laughs> has this like momentary just like lapse. Yeah. So as as he's kind of getting his wits about him again. One of the crew members goes out to the front door and he's like, Hey Rance, your agents waiting for you out there. So the director's like, just go out there, see what he wants. Just get rid of him so we can finish this. Um, and we didn't mention all the horse reactions. Oh in yeah. This episode. Yeah. There has been like three or four, uh, there's the horse outside of the saloon on the set 
there's like three or four times they cut to the horse for a reaction. It's funny that you say that because I literally my am like four four notes away from this point in the plot. I wrote, did you know that was a trick horse? I'm sure you did is what I wrote because <laughs> uh, they actually did bring in a specific horse that was made to give these stupid reactions. And yeah, like the whole kind of looks like it's laughing and then it's kind of like leaning its head to like, you know, like a almost like a face palm, but like since, you know, horses can't palm their faces, but it's laying its head against the hitching post. Like oh, you're kidding me, right? Yeah, we had that. Yeah, that's that's the one thing a comedy like I I liked a lot of the callbacks and everything in this, and I, um, I and like I said, I actually laughed at some of the stuff, but the the horror stuff was not nah. <laughs> <laughs> not for me. Yeah. Um. So yeah, when he goes outside to meet his agent, it turns out that's Jesse James, uh, in a Hawaiian shirt leaning against the <laughs> yeah. Which it's it's a funny gag. I mean, again, well, it's a funny look because the Hawaiian shirt and like the beret, and yeah, yeah it's like and then you find out that he's like, yeah, you know what? I'm reading the script, and you're supposed to shoot this guy. He's like, I think, I think, you know what? It'd be better if he got thrown through a window and he gets away. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> you know, and 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 Rance doesn't like it, but Jesse's basically like, you know, like he doesn't say it, but it's like we made a deal. So yeah, he and said, he yeah. squeezes his shoulder yeah. really hard. Yeah, <laughs> just a, basically saying like, uh, "Like you're gonna do this." Yeah. So yeah, you get the impression that this is gonna be an ongoing thing in his career. Is the uh, the ghost of Jesse James basically controlling his character's decisions from this point on? Yeah, because he gives um, him some future edits from like future scripts coming about. Like you know, I think this would be better, and it just seems like not only is Rance going to lose. Like once in a while, he's going to lose every time. It feels like from here on out. Yeah, yeah, he deserves it. <laughs> he needed to be taken down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he gets thrown out of the window, and uh, um, Jesse James puts him into the convertible, and they end up driving away. But do you remember the gag with the car of him driving, where he uh, grabs the wheel and says "Yeah," like it's a horse? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Hey, how do you yeah. feel about that? I thought I thought that was terrible. Like, <laughs> I just oh. I don't know. I had to take it or leave it. Yeah. So here, here's my frustration with this episode. Like I, I think like so talking to you about it and it's, this is usually what does happen when we get to talk about these episodes together is that things that may have been rough edges get a little smoothed down and I can, I can appreciate cause I appreciate your point of view. Um, there's a lot in this episode. I can appreciate what they're trying to do, but I was annoyed. I don't know what it, there's something about like, just it, it never really like, the conceit happens like way too late in the episode for me. And then it, it kind of spins out and it doesn't really, I don't know. There's something just off about this episode and it just never, it never really rung true for me. There's stuff that's enjoyable, but I just, I was kind of just annoyed with most of it. Yeah. I, I like I said, for once with a comedy episode, I wasn't completely annoyed and angry the whole time I was watching it. <laughs> like I, I, I thought this was a breezy episode. I thought it was pretty well balanced. I mean, Everything they set up in the beginning gets paid off at the end um, in the second half of the episode. Um, I thought Larry Blyden, compared to his Rocky performance, the last time we saw him on the series, that I, I couldn't stand him in that one. I thought uh, he didn't go – he didn't overact, which I think would have been very easy for this character. Mm -hmm. um, he, until we get to that final like pleading moment. Like he plays it pretty, uh, uh, he's a pretty even tempered dude, right? <laughs> like if, if we forgot uh, to mention he's, that uh, he's kind of smarmy. He's kind of, uh, he's, he's kind of annoying purposefully, but 
I think overall, like it could have been easy to overact the hell out of this perform uh, this uh, character. That's fair. We forgot to mention that as the gun was pointed right at his nose, he kept taking his like finger and moving it away, and then the gun would just come yeah. right back. Like it was, <laughs> it was okay. Um, I just I don't know. Like there's just something I. I it, it it just it, something about this episode bugged me. I guess I can't put my finger on what it is. It's just uh, I feel like I feel like it was trying. I mean, it was it was definitely being meta, you know. And then the sense of like Jesse knows what's going on, and then there's this whole idea that the characters of this world are bothered by losing to Rance McGrew, but the episode is implied that he goes back to the past, but not to like the show's pet like he's not in the world of it's like he wants to be in the world of rance mcgrew but this is treating this like the real jesse james whenever he's talking as the character of jesse james you know it's it's a weird it's a kind of a mixed a mixed um i don't know it wasn't one or the other and maybe that's yeah. what bugged me no that's definitely the if we're gonna get into some negatives about that that's definitely the problem i have because it, a lot of it points to this being in his head. So I, I don't understand how it could actually be Jesse James, how he would possibly know what Jesse James would want and all that kind of stuff. So if it, and it couldn't be back in any historical time because they're on the set still, yeah. like they're in the same place that they're shooting. Like he couldn't have gone back to time to a set in Hollywood that wasn't there, you know? So there, there's all itself. Like he's speaking, Obviously, with knowing like what the Emmys are and everything, like this is his subconscious speaking to him. Um, so it's it's just confusing if it's just like a break because he's insecure with his performance and everything. It's just like a mental break, and he's putting the blame. It's it's not him that's going to cause him to lose and his career to go down. It's it's the ghosts of these people that he's uh, vanquished in the past of the series or whatever. But it's it's definitely unclear and not in a good way. Yeah, because we've seen so many episodes where it's just like you like that ambiguous ending where it's like, well, it could have been in their head. It could have been real. And they leave you with just enough that you could tip it either way. This one, it, it seems like even Serling wasn't sure yeah. of which way this episode was leaning. I mean, and it, it just comes across as kind of muddled. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I understand what he's getting across in this because. I mean, we talked on your other uh, podcast, Invasion of the Podcast, last year at the end of uh, the year of the Western that you did. We talked about the changes that took place in the Western storytelling. And it, at this time, going into the 60s and everything, we we're getting all those John, John Ford Western, you know, like searchers had just come out a few years before this. Like we were getting more mature, uh, quote unquote, historically accurate characters. Um, it, it was changing, but the TV Westerns weren't mm -hmm. a lot of the TV Westerns were geared towards children. They, uh, uh, they had gotten pretty far from what I guess the old West would have been like, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> though, I mean, who really knows what the old West really was? You know, a lot of people say that it didn't even exist in the way that Hollywood even started, <laughs> uh, portraying it as, but you can you can definitely see that this is Serling kind of taking a shot at the at the TV Western. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and I, just his dissatisfaction with what was going on in that genre. Well, that's it was something fair. he loved. Yeah, well, because also like we talked about like some of the genesis of the Twilight Zone that the TV studios weren't taking many chances on shows that weren't westerns or like uh, 
uh, I'm just trying like there there were some comedies that were kind of tried and true like there were specific genres that they did not want to venture out of because that was like guaranteed audience and guaranteed money and the Twilight Zone had to try to carve that out so him taking the piss out of a western probably he probably had a little bit of an axe to grind with some of the you know with some of the stuff that was out there and the things that he was probably being given opportunities to work on but that's not what he wanted to do you know, so I can see that. I just the whole thing of of Jesse James wearing the Hawaiian shirt, as funny as it is, throwing Rance in the car and driving away. It's like I just it, that's where it's like it's not ambiguous, but it's I mean, because I mean, is he real? Maybe, but he's driving the car, or is it just Rance is having a psychotic break and he's still on the set? And everyone's like, oh, he's he thinks he's in a car being driven by Jesse James right now. We don't know. I mean, yeah, I I, 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 I take it as a psychotic break, but again, it's it's. <laughs> It's not clear and it's it's not ambiguous in a good way like we've seen the Twilight Zone do so many Twilight Zone do so many times. Yeah. Um, But I'm always interested. Like, I feel like we're going to get that home run of an like Western episode in the series. Um, This definitely is not my favorite. I had fun with it. But um, yeah, yeah, I'd be curious because Serling did go on to create that loner show um, in 1965 that only went like 26 episodes. Hmm. Um, I'd be curious to see what Serling did with that. Cause I guess there was a lot of, um, a lot of commentary of the time being worked into a Western setting. Okay. And I get, I guess the studio was not too happy with what he was doing with that. So it, it sounds like something that I would probably end up loving. I've never actually seen an episode of it, but yeah. that might be something in the future. Maybe we cover, uh, the pilot episode for the loner. Yeah. That'd be fine. See what that's like just to see if like maybe he finally hit his stride in writing Westerns (laughs) at that point. Well, I just think, I think the weird end of this, I think he, and this is me speaking about this guy who, who's, who's writing, wrote so much, understood the process way better than I ever will. Um, but I also, I feel like some of his lighter touch comedy episodes, these, these, these odd landings that don't have to be explained. I think that's his way out of being like, eh, it's a comedy. And, and, and that's, that's forgivable to a point. I still feel like great comedies can still stick the landing, you know? And this one, it just, you know, like we said, it's kind of muddled. Yeah, but I think he's yeah. like, I think he's okay with it being like, eh, it, it's, it's, it's lighthearted. It's a half hour. What do you want? You know? And I, I, I think we're a little bit harsher on some of these episodes just because there are such high points in the twilight zone. Yeah. You see what the series can do. And so when you see something that feels kind of lazy, like I, I feel like we have to call it out, you know, I mean, I'm sure Serling wouldn't have cared either way, but, um, you know, it's just one of those things you see what the series can do and it can it can do some of the most intelligent stuff from this era, um, even still today. Uh, but then you see this stuff and it does kind of feel like a cop out at the end. It feels like it wasn't totally thought through and developed. Uh, it, it can be kind of frustrating. Whoa. And that's that's where this episode leaves me flat. And it's it's crazy that I'm defending the comedy and not necessarily the writing in this. Episode. Yeah, that is, that, I mean, yeah, that I mean the comedy is the writing, but you know what I mean? Like, I mean, would you prefer more if you, if you had to pick one like this is this is the the unwinnable choice. Would you would you prefer the exploration of Rance McGrew or the melodramatic um, moments of like Mr. Denton on Doomsday? Like, what would you prefer if you had to watch something like this? Like, because I feel like Mr. Denton played it like a straight Western that happened to have gun fixer in it or whatever. Um, and with, you know, a broken man that was, you know, good at his job and then 
he described becoming an alcoholic and he's given one last, you know, like choice to make, or would you prefer something like this that at least tries to stretch the boundaries of what this type of story can be? Um, I think, I think I would go with this because it, I like that Serling's kind of taken a shot at the Westerns of the time, like especially the TV Westerns. I, I think it's more exciting to see him do something like that, that kind of explores the boundaries of what Westerns were at the time, than just doing something that basically fits directly into what was actually happening in that genre. Uh, while the while the Twilight Zone was going on. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Like, like I mean, because if you think about it, not that this is like this is like the grand discussion of the Western episodes we've seen so far, but I mean, like I think Dust is probably still my favorite of all of them um, that we've seen. Yeah, yeah, uh, Dust Dust is incredible. It, that's a great story. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that's been done so many times. Yeah, uh, redone and rewritten and remade you know there, there's a reason why that story keeps getting told um but it, no I, like i i think this is a fun episode um like i said i think just being a fan of the western and everything and seeing rod serling just being kind of pissed off <laughs> yeah. and taking a shot at the terrible tv westerns of the time is something interesting whether or not the episode lands you know is kind of on on the side for me you know it, it's not a hundred percent but uh, I thought it was fun and breezy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. I don't know. It's something, I, there could be something that you don't disagree with anything, but you still are like, you know what? I didn't really care for it. And I, I feel that's dismissive, but I, other than talking to you about it, I really didn't warm up to this episode very much. And it just kind of, it just, I just, I, maybe my expectations are skewed because the intro to it was so great that it was like, this is not like we're, we're going places I'm not expecting. And then it kind of just, I don't know. It just fell on its keys and it just did yeah, frustrate me. It just kind of goes where you expect. Yeah, kind of. So that, that's probably why. Yeah. So yeah. this might be one uh, watching with other people might, because uh, like you said, talking about this has been a more positive experience than watching it by yourself. Like you said, um, I watched it with my wife and we were both kind of laughing the whole time and enjoying the episode. Hmm. And it's, it, I, it, this is one of those ones like maybe, watching it with a bunch of people over you end up throwing some twilight zone on like this one might play better for you with some other people that's fair i, I yeah i'd agree with that so um yeah uh, do you have any other like notes about this because i have like one little quick story about uh mr cornflake here um that you'll appreciate um so um, yeah yeah no i got okay. nothing else so uh nibby uh mr nibby told so this is this is the real director telling the fake director that um there there was a sequence whenever uh um cornthwaite uh would go and touch his the script girl like he'd just like touch her shoulder or something like at one point he grabbed the gun i think she was sitting on it but it, there yeah. was a point of him physically touching her and and uh Nibie was like you know make sure you like that's important that you do that and cornthwaite as an actor was like i don't understand why he made it a point to point it out to me um because at the time, if someone was just on set, they were considered an extra, but if they got like touched or were brought into the scene somehow, they got paid more. So Nyby was kind of keeping an eye out for this girl to make sure she got a bump on her paycheck. Not, not in a malicious way, just more like, well, you know, if it happens, we're going to, you know, the, the production's going to pay her a little bit more and she's a working actress. And it didn't click with the actor why it was important that the director told him to make sure that you get this on camera. So it was kind of like a nice little, like good guy, Nibby thing of like, we're going to make sure she gets paid a little bit more. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, that's nice. Uh, that, uh, 
I guess that makes sense now because that was kind of an awkward moment in the episode. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, Nibi had his eye out to make sure that people, you know, got rewarded for uh, just whatever. I mean, it's like, it's one of those things that like, if they know the system and not that you're trying to bleed CBS dry, but yeah, you know, people are there working, you know, like you're, you know, um, like if you're Jay Overholtz, right? Like, you know, you get there, you get your paycheck, but if someone actually makes you say a line, you get a little bit more, you know? So I thought that was kind of a nice little story. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's the other than there was a trick horse, which we talked about. I got really nothing else. So, yeah, um, the only other thing I got, um, I, I post them on the Instagram occasionally. I have those paperbacks that Bantam uh, Publishing put out. Uh, they did redo this as a short story. Serling took another stab at it uh, in the new stories from the Twilight Zone. I guess not really much changed. He kind of altered his intro a little bit, hmm. but um, yeah, not not too much different from this. Oh, and one of the, one thing I want to mention is that the production number for this episode, which we never get into that, was originally set aside for a Ray Bradbury script. It didn't happen, but this was this was during the time whenever Bradbury and Serling were kind of well. Bradbury kind of was pissed off at Serling, thinking that he was like you know just like taking his work and you know plagiarizing him. So Serling was trying to find like, hey, if I can get you a couple scripts on the show, are we good. And so it was this thing that was kind of them trying to reach like an amicable space. They they eventually got along better, but Bradbury was like he kind of kept believing that Serling was taking his work. So it's interesting yeah. that that not that that's important this episode, but Serling was trying to slate in Bradbury at this point, and he does show up later. But this was his attempts at trying to like you know like smooth everything over. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm sure we'll talk more about Bradbury and, and Sterling later, but I, I just wanted to mention that even like this, that, you know, makes you wonder what could have been other than showdown with Rance McGrew. So whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's just, uh, if you want to want to rate the twist, this will be a fun one. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to give it a three. Cause I wasn't expecting the meta thing behind it. So as odd, as the dialogue is from real Jesse James is much and arch Johnson's great. I liked him. I thought he, he, his line delivery was great and everything. It's just that the whole thing felt a little unbalanced, but him directly commenting on everything at first, it took me a second to pick up on it, but the whole, like they're literally doing the meta examination of, of rants and television and the good guy always winning, always winning. So I, I'll give it a three. Yeah. I, I think that's a fair uh, rating of the twist and everything. A uh, few things happen in this episode that uh, you don't see coming. You know, uh, I, I think the best twist is the first 20 seconds of the episode. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, uh, <laughs> just because you're expecting the, like you said, the stranger to come walking into town and you get the, the convertible peeling down the, the dust way, as we call it. <laughs> the dust way. Yeah. I couldn't um, use the word street or road. No, that's, that's fine. Like <laughs> the dust way. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, like I think that's the most unpredictable thing in this episode. But yeah, it's 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 one of those things like I, I feel like there could have been a twist in this or some realization that could have been more, uh, I don't know, more laid out, a little bit more thought through. But um, overall, it's just kind of in the middle. Yeah, so yeah that's I'll give that I'll give it a three as well. Yeah. So there we go. All right. So um, all right, Kevin, how can people find us? Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube at Strange Highways Podcast. 
You can email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com if you want to leave us feedback on any of our episodes, including this one. And if you want to leave us voicemails, you can leave us a voice memo on there. Uh, we are available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, Satchel, pretty much anywhere you can find uh, podcasts. We are there. And it would definitely help us out if you would rate and review us on iTunes. I know we've gotten a few more ratings on there and some uh, reviews that uh, I, I feel terrible that we always forget to call out when people do it. But thank we you guys so though, much yeah. for doing that. Yeah, uh, we definitely appreciate it. And it helps us out immensely. Yeah. All right. So next episode, uh, kick the can. You know, so this is one that I've not seen the episode, but I definitely have a history with it. Um, when we'll, we'll get to not like I have a personal history with it, but, you know, part of the Twilight Zone movie. We'll talk about it next week. Um, so. All right. Um, I'm just going to warn you that this intro or this tease, it takes a turn. So just you you tell me when it changes. Right. So. All right. Uh, for all of us, even the most young at heart, I suppose there's a little kernel of want having to do reliving childhood. Uh, that grand and glorious moment at a time when the biggest guy around is the patrol boy. Next week on the Twilight Zone, this moment is recaptured in George Clayton Johnson's exceptionally sensitive story called Kick the Can. It co-stars Mr. Ernest Truo and Mr. Russell Collins. If the tobacco is a cigarette is good enough, <laughs> they alone will give mellow richness and satisfactory mildness. Try Chesterfield and you'll discover 21 great tobaccos that make 20 wonderful smokes. Ah, the taste of childhood. Yeah. I like, uh, <laughs> I like, I'm hoping that maybe we could describe ourselves as the mellow richness and satisfactory mildness. I think you're the richness. I think I'm the mildness. Uh, I, nah, I, I would reverse that. <laughs> I feel like I'm, uh, yeah. I'm pretty, uh, a pretty laid back dude. What do you call him? I already forgot the line. <laughs> you, you, no, you're pretty, pretty, uh, even tempered dude. Uh, yeah, but I don't know if I wrote this down wrong. I don't know if 21 great tobaccos make 20 wonderful smokes. If that, if that is actually how it's written, then what happened to the one tobacco? I don't know. I feel like there's a mystery here that, that Shirley's trying to tease out that we'll never it know fell the out of the to. bag while Rance was trying to pour it on the, uh, <laughs> on the yeah. paper yeah i just i like these like these uh you know hey this next this next week's story is all about childhood cigarettes you know i think that's uh you know yeah yeah so <laughs> who, who could forget the uh the smell of tobacco coming out of your dad's pipe as a child <laughs> yeah yeah so all right so yeah that's that's gonna do it for us this week next week kick the can i mean the, the episode don't don't kick the can um in the meantime so yeah have a have a safe week and um I don't know. Uh, don't go breaking glasses if you want to drink out of them. Just drink out of them like, you know, just like you should. Don't just break glass for no reason. Yeah, I, I have no warning, but uh, I'm going to go car shopping so I can go get that <laughs> that convertible. Perfect. Uh, so until next week, you'll see me driving that thing around. <laughs> This is cola. I told you I wanted ginger ale. It's got to look like whiskey. Sigh. Either straighten this oaf out or fire him. Mr. McGrew wants ginger ale. <laughs>